What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to Bigfoot Eyewitness Radio. For centuries, eyewitnesses have reported seeing giant creatures in the woods of North America and beyond. These forest giants have been known by many names, including Sasquatch, Oma, Yowie, Yeti, and their most commonly used name, Bigfoot. Join us as eyewitnesses share the details of their encounters with these forest giants on the show. And now your host, Vic Cundiff. Hi everyone, thanks for listening. If you've had a Bigfoot encounter of your own and would like to be a guest on the show, please go to BigfootEyewitness.com and submit a report. I'd love to hear from you. My name is Hal Lane. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. And I am a Bigfoot researcher. I have been for over a half a century. And I head up the Facebook group, Bigfoot and All Things Crypto. Um, I've been and known just about everybody in this business uh, over the years and probably have forgotten more than most people have learned about Bigfoot. But as I have well learned, uh, the more you learn, the less you know in this phenomenon. And so what I'm going to do, folks, is I'm going to start out with my first encounter, uh, and it was actually a childhood encounter. And it not only set me uh, on a course to basically uh, take a great interest in the hairy hominids running around in the woods, but it also left me with kind of a form of PSTD for quite a while. Uh, You can imagine I was 10 years old, and this was in 1966. Uh, At 10 years old, the Patterson-Gimlin film had not yet come out. And of course, all kids in the South at that time believed in the boogeyman, the booger man, the boogeyman, whichever way you want to pronounce it. And of course, we pretty much thought it was fiction. Uh, uh, the, uh, the horror movies were all out, the Wolfman, Frankenstein, you name it, uh, Creature of the Black Lagoon. But as a child, you, you think that it's just pretty much fiction and you're not too worried about it. So once you find out that the booger man is real, your whole life begins to change. And so uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell you about my first sighting. I, I had a friend by the name of Jim Branch, rest in peace. And he uh, and I used to play a lot in a particular area. And uh, the area was... Uh, bordered by a power line that ran down one side with 
standing pines off on the uh, just hundreds of acres of standing pines off to one side and then it came up to a to a, a highway uh, not a major highway or anything just a back roads highway and the homesteads uh in in the 60s back then in in the outskirts of Atlanta were spaced out at I'm guessing 100 to 150 acres apart so that you got to picture this there was uh there was uh, homes on the road but they weren't very close together and then behind the home where we had the siding was a massive kudzu patch I don't know how familiar a lot of you are with kudzu but it was brought over from I believe China or Indonesia and it was a uh it was a just an invasive monster. It, it, it grows and covers everything. It covers homes, chimneys, uh, anything that's abandoned, it will cover in just a matter of no time. But the unique thing about kudzu, a lot of people don't know is that it's uh, a major food for animals. Uh, a lot of times it's planted as a supplemental crop for cattle and uh, uh, deer feed on it. And uh, I believe that probably hairy hominids uh, or hominoids, whichever you, you prefer, they're both correct terms. I asked uh, Dr. Meldrum that and he gave me the answer. Either one is correct. I believe they feed on it too. And there's another thing about kudzu. It's, uh, it's just the most wonderful place to hide because what it does is it covers everything so as it grows along the ground if you have a drainage ditch let's say running through the ground the kudzu will cover over the drainage ditch and it makes uh, a little world underneath itself and you can travel underneath that kudzu without being seen as long as you stay in the lower lying air areas of the ground and then you can pop your head up just as if you were skin diving you pop your head up out of water and so uh, we had gone to this area to play that day. It wasn't the first time. And the funny thing about that area, too, uh, and I don't know if it has anything to do with this story, but uh, but I want to let you know about it because I find it interesting, was at the time there was an outbuilding to not the home where the siding was, but the next homestead over from it, there was an outbuilding and the whoever owned it had the windows all blackened in and uh as we as kids we we noticed the windows were blacked in so of course we wanted to see what was in there you know and so we would uh find a crack in the uh in the uh, black spray paint and look in there and this somebody had a rather elaborate chemical lab going in there i only assume now that he was producing illicit drugs of some kind uh, and remember this was in the mid 60s it was in 66 so uh I, I don't know what all kind of drugs people were taking then but i'm just assuming that there was different uh, street drugs being produced i could be wrong he may have been making a formula for uh, uh, uh a protectant for for car tires for all i know i don't know but i know that he disposed of a lot of his medical waste into a ravine uh that the kudzu had covered and there must have been uh 500 beakers all these kind that you see in a frankenstein lab the round bottle bottom beakers uh regular uh medical beakers just all kinds of glass and and chemical uh waste chemical and uh medical uh, laboratorial type waste 
So we found it fascinating, but I think we had enough sense not to be handling those bottles, but we would get down there and look at them. And, uh, and, and so we would go underneath this, this kudzu field uh, because there were several um, ravines running through it. And they're about five feet deep. So if you're a 10-year-old kid, you could just travel down these ravines and stick your head up and see what was going on. And so uh, the... We, as you come down the ravines, it, it came to kind of like a choke point where there were two or three other ravines coming in and the medical trash was off to one side. And then the ravine continued on and it went toward a, an embankment. And, uh, and, and we, as you went up the embankment, there was standing pines and the kudzu was growing up the bank and up the first set of pines that you came to. The pine trees were probably 75 feet high at the time. Uh, and then, uh, so, so we came in through the power line, got into the ravine and went down through the kudzu, uh, past the medical waste. And we're under there and we're just enjoying ourselves being kids. Uh, and, and, uh, the, the begin to be a ruckus. And the, the kid, uh, that was approximately, I would say our age had come onto the back porch of that house on the other side of the kudzu field and he was screaming at his mom to come he was uh, to, uh, the best i recollect he was screaming mom come here it's back it's back mom and he was trying to point out something to her uh so we had no idea we almost kind of thought maybe he was uh, screaming at us or something. So we popped our heads out of the kudzu and you could see him pointing at the top of the embankment that was off to our left. Uh, so we looked to see what he was pointing at. And uh, all I can say is uh, I can only tell you exactly what I saw. Now, I was old enough. I had been hunting since I was five for squirrel and stuff. My dad had a 22 range inside our house, believe it or not, in the great room and used phone, phone books as backdrops. And we practiced shooting in the house. So I, I was used to going into the woods and seeing things. I, I wasn't, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't a dumb kid by any stretch of the imagination. And we saw what to us appeared to be about, and I'm just guessing, about an eight foot creature. Now, the reason I say eight feet is because my dad was six, four, and it looked to me to be a couple of feet taller than him and three or 400 pounds heavier. Uh, and it looked very apish to us. As a matter of fact, uh, later when we're uh, reporting this to my dad and everything, we described it as a big gorilla. Now, when we saw it, it did not see us. And it seemed to us that he was uh, he was grabbing the kudzu and just yanking it. It seemed like as hard as he could. And uh, I don't know if he was trying to shake down a bird nest or something, or if he was reacting in anger to this kid screaming at him. Uh, but he yanked three or four times real quickly, real hard on that kudzu on those kudzu vines. And of course, it scared us to death. And we immediately, uh, we only, honestly, only looked at him for a couple of seconds. Uh, we didn't drop immediately because I guess we were just too much, too too much in shock and too astounded by what we were seeing. Uh, 
so we immediately fell down under the kudzu and my friend was crying like a baby. Now he was a tough kid. I'm not saying he was any tough. I was any tougher than him, but I didn't cry for some reason. Everybody handles situations like that, traumatic situations like that differently, of course. And I spent years in emergency medicine and I've seen this, found this to be true. You know, people just react in all kinds of different ways, different things. But my friend was crying like a baby. And uh, he, I said, what should we do? We were discussing what to do. And I happened to notice that he had urinated all over himself. And so to, to kind of take a pause in what I'm t- trying to tell you is that we were so scared uh, I don't remember all of the effects it had on me, but I knew I was shaking like a leaf because we thought he was going to run down there and kill us. Uh, uh, you can imagine you, at 10 years old, you're probably what all of 80 pounds or something. I don't know how big we were exactly, but this thing was, it, it was truly a monster to us. And so we started running in that uh, drainage ditch and we ran uh, kind of like on all fours, almost crawling and running. And, uh, and I remember, uh, my friend was faster than me. And I remember being scared that I was going to get left behind because I honestly didn't know if the thing had seen our heads pop up looking back. I don't think that it did. I really don't. And, uh, so we continued to run until that uh, drainage uh, ravine emptied out back onto the power line. And when it did, we took a right on the power line heading away from the area. The grass was on the power line was it was almost like hay uh, is. It was maybe, I would say, waist high, just like you would see a field of hay. And we, I'll never forget, while we ran, uh, I remember skinning my knuckles up because I was trying to run so low that I actually fell several times uh, because we, I guess we were afraid that it was going to see us and chase us down. The impression we got was that it could catch us in a matter of seconds because it was so big. And we ran for approximately, a, I would just guessing, I would say probably an eighth to a quarter of a mile. And I remember it was fairly warm that day. And I remember thinking that I was going to die because when we got through running, I was so out of breath and uh, and I was so flush with heat that uh, that I remember the top of my head literally pounding. And I had never felt that way in my life. But that's how uh, fear fear struck we were. Uh, now, uh, at that time. uh there, there was nothing known about Bigfoot that I knew about at all. I never heard anything like that uh, whatsoever, uh, not even an inkling to anything like that. So we got back to my house. And when my dad got home, he knew that something had happened to us because my dad was a smart man and he trusted me. He trusted me with a 22 rifle at that age to go out in the woods by myself. Uh, so he was a very, I, I, I wasn't overly precocious as a child, but my dad did give me a lot of free range of you know, the freedom to range wherever I needed to and do what I, ne- I needed to more than some kids. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, he knew that something had happened. And the best we could describe him was that, Dad, there is a giant gorilla living in the woods. And so my dad called Atlanta Zoo at the time. And the funny thing was Atlanta Zoo had a one single gorilla exhibit. His name was Willie B. And if I'm, I don't know, they probably even still for years and years, they had a Willie B because Willie B, if Willie B died, they replaced him. And the next one was Willie B. And he was uh, by himself in a, in an enclosure and he had a, a big truck tire on a chain to play with and a color TV to watch. And his, uh, uh, somebody had donated that TV. I think the first one he had was black and white. And I remember when he got upgraded to a color, uh, when color TVs came out, but his favorite show was live Atlanta wrestling. He just would hoop and holler and go crazy over that, over that show. And so my dad called and asked them if Willie B had escaped his enclosure. And of course, the zoo laughed and assured my dad that Willie B was still there. And at that moment, uh, the whole ordeal pretty much blew off because my dad had no idea. He never even mentioned the word bear. If he did, I don't remember it. Uh, but I think he knew me well enough. Uh, I was so sure when I told him that it was some type, some kind of a well, I don't even think I said type. I think I probably said it was a, a big gorilla because I was very familiar with Willie B and his size. And this thing was, uh, I knew it was a lot bigger than him. And so it, the whole thing kind of blew over. And I remember uh, my friend and I, we did not go back to that area ever again. Uh, we went fishing at a lake that was probably a quarter mile from there, but we never went back to that actual area again. And I don't think we talked about it hardly that I remember. Maybe spottedly we did uh, because I, I stayed in contact with him until he died recently. We were friends for uh, way over a half a century. So um, we didn't really talk about it. But uh, then maybe two years, if my uh, if I recollect properly, two years or so. 
there was a theater down there called the Glen Theater. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, during the previews to movies, there was the Patterson Gilman film was being shown. I'm thinking that's the first place I saw it. And I remember uh, kind of having an epiphany at that moment and thinking to myself that that's what we must have seen. Now, I don't remember exactly how Jim saw the film. Uh, I can't remember if he was at the movie theater, me, or if I sent him up there to see it, uh, or, or we saw it again on TV. I really don't remember. Uh, but I just remember that he and I both connected the dots and assumed that that's what we must have seen. Now, you got to remember, I was only 10 years old. Uh, it did it did kind of leave me with a PSTD because in my mind, uh, because I, I knew it wasn't Willie B and I knew there weren't a such thing as uh, indigenous wild gorillas. So I didn't really know how to take it until the Patterson Gimlin film, until I, I was familiar with that. I did not understand how to take this sighting. Uh, it it kind of messed me up, to be honest with you. I know that that uh, at times I I, uh, I, I had these uh, moments of fright that would come over me uh, where I would just uh, like. Uh, and the funny thing was, was uh, it wasn't darkness. I associated the fear with with daytime, like uh, just normal woods in the day would become real. I would become real fearful. And I didn't really know why, because I, I guess I was psychologically putting the sighting out of my mind. But uh, for for a long time, until I straightened it out in my mind with the Patterson-Gimlin film, uh, which I'm sure most of you listeners are familiar with, the, the first major uh, good clear footage of a Bigfoot shot by uh, uh, Roger Patterson and um, and uh, Bob Gimlin, uh, it uh the uh, there was just nothing to equate it with. And so when I would get these these moments of fear, I would be like in some woods heading home from from the lake fishing or something and sudden and overwhelming fear would come over me and I would just begin to run and there would be no reason for it. And the only thing I, I, I think now is, is, is a, uh, as an old man, uh, not old, old, but an older man, uh, that I must have been suffering from PSTD. Of course, that word wasn't even out back then. I think uh, I was probably from the era where shell shock was the was the term. And so, uh, uh, you know, PSTD wasn't even wasn't even the term. So uh, but I'm sure that's probably what I was suffering from. And then uh, and then as uh, time went on, I became real interested in, in not just Bigfoot, but crypto in general and uh and i think that 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 childhood sighting gave me kind of an unfair advantage in this phenomenon because it uh i knew that they were real so nobody had to convince me of it again i didn't find tracks and i'm trying to figure out who made the tracks i saw i saw it with my own eyes even though i was young uh, i still knew what i saw I knew in my heart and I had a witness, uh, my, uh, my best friend saw it too. So, uh, it, 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 set me on a road, uh, uh, to, to wanting to know everything I could about crypto cryptozoology. And another thing too, pertaining to that sighting was that, um, uh, I began to, to, 
to welcome the idea of other creatures, other cryptids. Uh, so, of course, when when the thing about Loch Ness Monster, when Nessie came out and the Chupacabra and, and, and Thunderbirds, everything else, Dogman, as all these things came out, I always had a really open mind to them. As a matter of fact, maybe a little bit too open because I knew that Bigfoot was being, the, 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 the belief in Bigfoot was being just bashed and ostracized and people were just, uh, you know, there was all kinds of uh, schools of thought on it. And, I, and the whole time I'm just thinking to myself, well, they're real, uh, you know, and, and so I had a little bit of an unfair advantage going in. Now, uh, I, and I'm kind of leading into how my second sighting came about. I'm not one of these that saw a Bigfoot every week. My sightings were spread out by many decades. So I don't know how some of these people are getting in there and seeing as many as they are. I, I, I don't even want to speculate. Uh, I just know that uh, I've spent over a half a century in in the forest in in from Georgia to California, uh, just all Florida, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, Louisiana. I've been a lot of places and I just find them very hard to get an eye on them. Uh, the, you know, I, I, you can get a, a little fleeting glance, but to get a real good eye and know what you're looking at is a very hard thing to accomplish. So these, some of these folks, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I, I try to take everything with a grain of salt, but I really, uh, I find them hard to see. I don't find their sign hard to find, but I find a visual on them to be pretty tough. Now, uh, some years later, uh, it became fairly big, the, the phenomenon of the skunk ape. And I was in the Everglades. Uh, uh, I was actually uh, staying with um, relatives in Miami. And um, I was in the Everglades and I met Lauren Coleman. Uh, he was down there on a um, skunk ape call. And he, I had a conversation with him about skunk apes, and and I, I think I mentioned, I can't remember, I'm pretty sure I mentioned my childhood sighting to him because at the time I met him, I'd only had one sighting, but I knew that the skunk ape ape phenomenon was probably real, and I started following and kind of mentoring off of Lauren Coleman at that time. I don't know if, how many of you are familiar with him, but he's a, a real in, in the crypto world. He's he's the top reporter in the crypto world. And, uh, and I kind of, uh, I kind of really enjoyed the way he approached things. And, and, and so I, uh, and, and he had the theory of the napes, the North American apes. He, he believed that there was a population of apes, uh, living in the, in the Dodacious forest up in the canopies. And, uh, and this is a, a, a very, uh, uh, it's very, uh, pretty well known that there is a population of apes. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, the Mayaka uh, uh, skunk ape looked just like an orangutan. And there's there's pretty strong belief that there's an indigenous uh, uh, population of, of apes of different types living in Florida. It's not hard to believe. I, I don't see why it should be hard, uh, uh, such a stretch to believe that at all. So anyway, I, uh, I, uh, I, I was very interested in Bigfoot at that time, uh, and, uh, and skunk ape and, uh, and, and, and my interest, um, uh, began to blossom at that time. So I was invited by a friend and, uh, and to go on a wilderness camp 
in North Georgia. And this camp was on the outskirts of the Kohutta Wilderness. It's a massive, uh, probably, I don't know how many acres, but it's probably three or 400,000 acres. It's the most wilderness part of Georgia, unless you were to get deep into the Okefenokee Swamp. It's, it's every bit it's equal. These are probably the two most remote areas of Georgia would either be the uh, Okefenokee or, uh, or Kohutta Wilderness. And of course, the Kohutta Wilderness is contained within the Chattahoochee National Forest in North Georgia. So I got invited on this, uh, on this wilderness camp. And, uh, and, and in order to do the camp, it was in midwinter. And uh, I think that weekend, the average temperature was around five degrees. Uh, and so you had to be well prepared and you had to hike all your gear in uh, on one trip from the highway. You had to go in because the camp was probably seven miles, if my recollection is right. Uh, and at this time, I was I was in my early 20s. So uh, it, it's a long time back to remember, but I think it was seven miles in. And you had to hike. You had to pack everything you needed in. You couldn't forget anything. And so uh, we were going for a three-day uh, excursion. Now, uh, at the time, I had uh, both, uh, I had a deer rifle. Uh, if my recollection serves me, it was a 30 alt 6 or a 30-30. I'm not sure because I, I sported both, both calibers in those days. Uh, when I didn't want as heavy a gun, I would carry the 30-30, but I had some type of high-powered rifle with a, with a good scope on it. And I had a, um, uh, either a 1911 pistol or I had a, uh, uh, a Ruger pistol of some kind. I can't remember exactly. And so, uh, and my friend was not armed. And, uh, so we went into camp and the first night I always, when we, when I camp, I always surround my tent with 50 pound saltwater fishing line. And the reason I do that is I go from, from, I go in a, in a big circle around the tent, maybe 25 feet from the tent. And I make the, the fishing line waist high. And then I hang, uh, uh, on one side a cowbell and on the other side a cowbell. And what this does, and I just came up with this off the fly was if a man or a bear or anything else approaches your tent during the night, um, uh, it'll hit that fishing line and that cowbell will shake. Now, the reason I did it on that particular camp, that was the first time I ever used this technique. And it was because I had read somewhere about somebody getting shot. Uh, while they were out camping, uh, someone had snuck up on them for no reason and shot them. And so, uh, so I was actually doing it to prevent myself from being attacked by man, not by anything else. I knew Bigfoots were real. I always kept an op uh, open mind and, and kept my eye out for anything Bigfoot. But I'm going to be honest, on this trip, it was the farthest thing from my mind. I was uh, intent on shooting a deer and, and cooking it at the camp and uh, just having a good time winter camping. And I had, I had no, no idea at all that I might run into a Bigfoot or anything on this trip. 
So the first night on Friday night, it got cold and there was snow on the ground and it had basically turned to a, a layer of uh, snow with some crunchy ice on top of it. It was like frozen snow, you might say. And, uh, and it wasn't much. It was only a couple of inches of snow on the ground. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And uh, so we went to sleep as normal. And I had the rifle laying beside me and I had the, the pistol on the other side of me. And about, I have no idea what time it was, but I'm assuming it was about midnight or two o'clock. The cowbells went off and my friend, uh, woke up and he said, if you got your gun and, and he said, I didn't say a word to him. All he heard was me jack around into the chamber of the handgun. Now, when I did this, I had heard. Uh, as the cowbell was going off, I thought I heard crunching footsteps and I knew that the fishing line was too high for it to be, uh, it could have been a big deer with antlers, but I knew it was too high to be a, a raccoon or a possum or anything like that. And it, it could have been a big black bear too. And so, uh, but I, I knew whatever it was, it was big enough to possibly be a threat. So I laid there with that gun chambered, uh, and, and, for maybe a half hour. And I don't know if anybody's ever been in a situation like that, but the thing is, is you can only stay awake so long when you're, when you've been hiking at, at, at sub, uh, sub freezing temperatures and hauling gear and, uh, driving, uh, hundreds of miles up to where you're going, uh, at, at, midnight or two o'clock in the morning, you're extremely tired. And even if there's a threat outside your tent, you, you can still fall asleep, which I didn't intend to do. Uh, I never heard anything else. I heard, I heard a little something going off at, at the moment, but I couldn't tell if it was what it was. Do I couldn't tell anything. And I laid there and then the next thing I knew, the sun was coming up and I freaked out because I had gone to sleep and the gun was still on my chest. So I, we got up and I was like, my God, what was that that rang the cowbell during the night? 
So I got up and I began to walk that uh, fishing line perimeter. And and my buddy at the time, he wasn't thinking what I was thinking. And he was just out uh, getting pots and pans and stuff ready to, to get breakfast going. And I walked that perimeter and I found footprints coming in to where it hit the fishing line at coming at an angle. And these prints were huge. Uh, I, at the time, didn't know what to think. At, at this moment, I still had not put together that a, that a Bigfoot had come near my camp. And I looked down and, and they looked like, like basically like Shaq O'Neal. I think he's got around a, um, he wears around a size, I think it's size 22. His foot's not 22 inches long, but he wears a, a shoe that's a 22. I forget the length of his foot, but I'll put it to you this way. It was the biggest footprints I had ever seen in my life. And I, I didn't know what to think. I thought, uh, you know, I, first I'm thinking, is there some big mountain guy up here cooking whiskey that's coming up to our camp at night or something? I, I didn't know what to think at first. And I'm looking at them. And as they, at the angle they came in, they hit the fishing line and then it left at a different angle and went off down through a, uh, a holler more like there was a creek running right in front of where we were camping and it ran off at an angle, crossed the creek and went off down into the woods. And I, I'm sitting there looking at it and I'm trying to put two and two together and I just don't have an answer in my brain at that time. And then it was kind of like, uh, uh, an epiphany. And I, I, I thought, wait, wait a minute, this, this must be a Bigfoot. And, and it, it was the strangest feeling because I'm like, I just couldn't believe it. I, I'll just put it to you that way. And so my friend, I brought him over there and I showed him and he wanted to leave. He was scared to death. And I, I, it was my truck and my keys. And I said, no, I said, we're not leaving. And he was like, man, I want to leave. He was really frightened. And uh, I don't know if he'll admit that to this day, but uh, he was. And uh, so uh, I said, no way, you know, and I wanted to see what was going on. So we continued getting everything ready that morning, eating and all. And then I left to go hunting. I told him I was going deer hunting and I was. I was going to combine uh, following that track way, that track line and and hunt for deer at the same time. So I left camp uh, maybe an hour later and I followed that thing's trail for probably a quarter of a mile or less, or maybe a little less, maybe, maybe like uh, an eighth to a quarter of a mile, somewhere in between there. And it went off down through a really thick, deep, ridge and I did not want to go down in there for number one I, I I didn't know exactly what I was following and I was a little bit uh I had enough sense not to just go into too hard or inaccessible of an area uh by myself like that so I went up to the right where the where the ridge went up and it overlooked the area where he had disappeared into and I got up and I, I set up a, a, a ground stand, a, a ground deer stand where you just get it at the base of some bushes or tree under good cover. And I, I started just, I began to deer hunt from that location right there, looking down to where the, the footsteps had disappeared into. 
And I sat there maybe three or four hours and I saw some movement uh, and I got my scope up and it was a, a perfect little place to, to put the rifle and, and to scope out an area. And uh, any deer hunter will tell you that uh, one of the most effective ways better than glassing with binoculars is if you look through a scope and you're looking in an area if you have a four five or six power scope and you're looking over an area you can see every single detail you can see an acorn on the ground uh you know uh from 50 yards away i mean you can really uh look hard at an area and so i was just looking uh you know to see what was moving uh you know and and so i didn't think a whole lot at that moment and I saw it come up behind a tree. I saw just movement come up behind a tree. And I do not believe that it knew I was there, but I believe it was spooked. It had either smelled me or it had heard me somewhere, somehow, because it was looking in my direction. Now, understand I was camouflaged and I get pretty camouflaged when I hunt. All my skin's camouflaged. I wear a face net and everything. And I was basically uh, in, in a bush. And as I'm looking through the scope, he was behind a hardwood tree that was probably had a diameter of about 25 inches. It was a big, big hardwood tree. And uh, he looked out from behind the tree, bringing his left shoulder out and his face. And what struck me at that moment was his right, that was his left shoulder and face coming out. His right shoulder was still visible on the other side of the tree. Now, looking back, I suppose it could have been another one standing over there, but I only saw one thing approach this tree. And uh, I believe with all my heart that that other shoulder was his shoulder. And if that's true, he was humongous. And I begin to get like uh, what's called buck anger. It's where you see a buck deer and you can't really pull the trigger and you just start shaking. Uh, some people call it buck fever. But I began to get buck anger. Now, I wasn't going to I didn't intend to shoot it at that moment. I didn't know what to think. And I remember just kind of like a cold rush coming down in my face and I'm looking at it in the scope and I'm trying to figure out if he sees me because it, 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 it's a strange thing to, to see an animal like that. That's, that's really not supposed to be there or not supposed to exist. And, and I'm looking, you got to remember now, he's probably, if I had to guess 75 yards away and I'm looking through my scope. And so his face looked like it was 10 feet from me in that scope. And he's just, just sitting there with this, this like piercing look, looking for something. And I'm like, Oh my God, I hope he doesn't see me. Now I did have a pistol and a rifle, but I'm telling you, when you see something that big that probably weighs seven to 800 pounds at least, and is probably seven and a half, eight feet tall, and that has a uh, 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 20, uh, 20 inch, 22 inch feet. Uh, it, words cannot explain what happens to you because you, you know you have a gun, but a lot of people have been killed by grizzly bears that were dead on their feet. Uh, just because you have a gun and you shoot a dangerous creature, it doesn't mean you're going to survive. Now, the creature may die, but he's going to get you first.
And I had enough sense, uh, not that I wanted to shoot it, but I had enough sense uh, that if I had to shoot it, there was a good chance I was going to die. So I just stayed perfectly still, except for the buck anger I had going on. I was shaking uh, and and it looked, at, looked in my direction for probably, um, I don't know, maybe a minute. And it evidently didn't see anything. And it's. And what, what kind of struck me, too, was it skulked away as if it was trying to skulk, knowing that something was in my general vicinity. And it skulked off and I, I watched it leave and I I saw it plainly enough through that scope to where there was no doubt in my mind whatsoever that it wasn't any kind of a bear. I mean, I'm not stupid. I, I read bear books since I was a little bitty kid, everything on bear attacks and everything I could get my hands on, on bears. And, and I, I had shot deer by this age. I had uh, done plenty of hunting, been in the woods quite a bit. I was actually a very functional woodsman uh, and, and I was good at survival and I knew what I'm looking at. I know, uh, you know, uh, what I'm seeing and I got a good look at it and it was a Bigfoot as plain as day. So now I am really hooked because after it was all over and I settled down, I just sat down. I, I remember sitting down at the base of the tree I was hunting behind and, and I was just sitting there looking off in the distance, just thinking to myself, you know, what does this mean? I mean, what could it possibly mean? And uh, up until that moment, and this was, I'm trying to think what year it was. It was probably 74 or five, if my memory serves me correct. Uh, I had had a talk about this event with my friend that was with me that weekend, not long ago. He's still alive. And, uh, and, and I had, a, we tried to narrow down the year. And so I'm thinking it was 74, five or six, right along in there, just, just a little over 20 years old. So that moment really defined my, my search and, and my research for, uh, Bigfoot because I knew, I knew I confirmed for myself my childhood sighting. I knew that they were real for sure. And, uh, and I began to study and hang with anybody Bigfoot I could possibly meet or find out about. Uh, I got, uh, very engrossed in the, uh, back in those days, there was a, a theory that Bigfoot was living underground and it was pretty widely accepted too amongst a lot of the uh, Bigfooters in that day, uh, that Bigfoots, uh, used, uh, ground cavities, not necessarily caves, but that they actually uh, used uh, uh, sticks and stuff and would dig out uh, little funnels and, and, and almost like the Vietnamese uh, in, in Vietnam did, the tunnel rats. Uh, it was widely believed at that time. And I got really in with some folks that were following that school of thought. Uh, but later on, I think it kind of purged itself out uh, but the reason that, that that got so popular at that time was because 
they were so hard to see and they would disappear. They would just absolutely, uh, nobody knew about halogen shine on the hair and that they were almost like chameleon lizards or anything. No, nobody knew anything in those days. Uh, they still don't, but, but they know more than they did then, but nobody understood that. So they were trying to figure out, well, how are these things just, just disappearing? And, and it all really boiled back to the, like the ultimate Navy SEAL, the ultimate special op, uh, Delta Force, uh, you know, the, those guys can just appear out of nowhere and and uh, and and kill you and just, then re-disappear. So it, it's kind of that's kind of like it is. The 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 Bigfoots are the ultimate woods warrior. The, the the ultimate warrior. There's just no doubt. And if they had guns, oh my God, it would be terrible. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, anyway, that that. That's that's what the event that set me on to um, to a real pursuit um, for the next few few years. Um, you know, I just studied everything I could get my hands on, uh, and then uh, with the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And then uh, I eventually ended up uh, helping with some some different, uh, you know, I, I got it. I got involved in California. I went, I made several trips to California and I, I met some fairly famous people of uh, Peter Burns, different people out there in the Bigfooting world. Uh, you know, and I tried to, I helped out some with some of the camera stuff and all. Uh, and, and, uh, I dabbled in, in a little bit of everything, but, uh, I, I, it wasn't until later on, I went back to California for 10 years because, you know, California is, the place to be, as they say. And, uh, and, uh, and, and Bigfoot is, is, I don't think they're any, by any stretch of the imagination, they're any more pop populous. The, the population of Bigfoot's no more there than it is in Georgia, for example. And I do believe there's a population explosion of hairy hominids. I don't know why. And Tommy Cooper agrees with me. So there's a lot of think tanks, Phil Palmer, uh, uh, Ginger, um, Lockwood, um, uh, Jim Gregory, a lot of people associated with Bigfoot and all things crypto believe this too. We believe there's a population explosion and we don't know why though. And it may be because of the increase of rain because it's, it's pretty well known that Bigfoot have to have, need a lot of rain to to, to facilitate the plants and, and different foods they need and the animals that are produced from a lot of rainfall. Uh, and so uh, I went back to California and this is going to, I'm trying to, to lead you into my next encounter, which was pretty profound. It, it wasn't a visual sighting, but it was, it was very profound. I went to, I was in California and I had some Mexican friends that were ex-Marines and uh, they went camping a lot and they carried a lot of firepower. And these guys were just American gun ho Mexican Americans that just they they were patriotic they they uh, they loved shooting and uh, and they were macho men they were very uh, as a lot of uh, you know the Latin macho thing they were really really macho 
they went and took their wives and kids and pit bulls on a camping trip into the San Bernardino National Forest. Now, I had hung with these guys quite a bit uh, and rode around in their hoopties and stuff. And uh, and I was actually really good friends with them. And they laughed at me because they found out about the Bigfoot uh, phenomenon and everything. And I showed them pictures and all, but they didn't they didn't believe they laughed. Uh, and, and, you know, rightfully so. Uh, it's hard for people to digest the, the thought that there's hairy hominids running around out there and they're not us. But they took it with a grain of salt and they they went camping as they usually did. And they went out to a place in the San Bernardino National Forest that's not designated for camping. It was uh, it was just an area they knew about. And it kind of backed up. There was some farmland off to one side. And uh, and so they they camped in this stretch of woods uh, because it was really nice. This area they had found. Well, during the night of the first, they went for a five day camp. During that night, something kept harassing their campsite, and their pit bull was the bulldogs were so scared they kept trying to send them out of the camp. Go get it, go get it, and they wouldn't do it. All of the pit bulls and these were pretty mean dogs. I've been around them and, uh, and they were just scared to death, according to my friends. And, uh, they couldn't believe it. And then they got some glimpses of something moving around in the woods and heard some, some different screams. And to make a short, long story short, they got so scared, uh, that, uh, the next morning, they decided to end the five-day camp after one night. Now, before they left, they went scouting around to try to see what had harassed them. And sure enough, they found monster Bigfoot prints, 18 quadruple E's. And I have a photo of, of one I found after I went back to the to the site uh, that where it the, the, the Bigfoot had stepped right in cow dung into a cow plant. And uh, it's one of my better photographs. Uh, and I did not uh, cast it, uh, which I'm still kicking myself for. But to make a uh, to go on now, the uh, after they got back, they're just just that's all they can talk about. And they're telling me the story and and they're showing me the photograph of the print. And, of course, their wives are saying, that's a that's a bear, isn't it, Hal? And I said, no, it's not a bear. It's a Bigfoot. It's got a mid-tarsal break in it. And uh, and they're like, oh, oh. I mean, they, my male friends, they knew I, were, I was right. I, I don't know about their wives. And uh, so uh, they gave me directions uh, to the area. So uh, about two days later, uh, a friend of mine named Zach and I went out uh, to check out the area where the sighting was. And uh, we were armed. And we, we rode up a dirt road to exactly and followed the directions through the woods and all exactly like they told us. Now, what I noticed when I first got there that was really unique was there was an underground spring bubbling up out of the ground at the bottom of a ravine. The ravine was maybe 20 feet deep and you could access it from one end. Uh, and it had a cold clear, clean, cool water bubbling out of the bottom of it. It was incredible because you got to understand that 
this part of the San Bernardino National Forest is, is high desert. It's arid. It's got hills, not mountains, just, just rolling hills, but it's very arid. If, uh, if it doesn't rain, if there's any kind of a drought, it would be brutal in this area. It's not desert. It's high desert. There's a big difference. So I see this water source and I'm like, mm-hmm, because the the knowing uh which i already knew there was a bigfoot in the area i knew there was because i saw the print and i knew exactly what it was uh i knew he was there for the water uh, uh there's just no doubt about it because there's there's just there's no lakes in that area no creeks I, I, as i explored that area I, I didn't even see a creek anywhere that spring was the perfect water source for any large animal so I, I immediately I knew that that I knew why he was there. So we begin to explore, and and it didn't take us long. It maybe a couple of hours of hiking around or less. We came upon a nest that consisted of probably hundreds of thousands of sticks. Now it made an igloo, and the entrance to it was about five maybe six feet high more like five feet high it, it was if you can picture a, a stick igloo that's exactly what it looked like and and they had it, it had basically basically been formed off of a tree so the so the tree ran up the up the up the one side of the opening and they had kind of used that as a little bit of the uh, of the base to start it and, and it was a mixture of of smaller limbs and big limbs and the smallest limbs were maybe four inches long and uh and the bigger limbs were like tree limbs three or four feet uh mixed in there so they had built like it looked to me like it was almost waterproof it was so well done and it had so many thousands of pieces to construct it i was just amazed and uh and of course, the minute my friend saw it, he pulled out his 40. I think he had a 40 caliber Glock, if I, if my memory serves me. And he pulled that 40 out and he said, man, let's get out of here. And, and I'm like, no way. Uh, you know, we're, we're not going anywhere. And, uh, so I began, of course, to look, look around the nest and I found this and I, what I believe to be the same animals tracks that my friends had showed me the picture of. They were, uh, the, now they didn't measure. Uh, the tracks when they saw them, uh, but I did, and they were eighteen uh, and 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 very wide. I, if I had to guess, I'd say quadruple or or five e or something to that effect. And it, it was funny because they were about the same size of the tracks I saw in Georgia, uh, and I mean really large tracks. And the funny thing was they were in very hard soil, but the tracks were about an inch and a half, two inches deep. And when I stomped the ground to try to make a similar track, I actually hurt myself stomping the ground because the ground was hard and I couldn't even make a, a eighth of an inch imprint into the ground. And so uh, I knew, I knew for a fact that whatever had stepped in that spot was very, very heavy. Now, the substrate in that area wasn't conducive to tracks. I found this track near the nest on just a, an area where uh, there was like uh, rocks about the size of, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, pencil erasers. There was a bunch of rocks uh, and it's on my uh, my Bigfoot page. The picture is, but it was um, 
it was in rocks uh, and and uh, and not sand, but there was some loaminess to the ground, uh, and it and it probably looks in the photograph like it's softer than it is, but it was extremely hard. I mean, I hurt myself when I stomped down. It was like ah, oh, you know, I actually had pain shoot up through my leg. Now, uh, so we, we, we kept investigating the area and looking around and I, we found more of the track line and it went off and crossed a barbed wire fence and went off into this, uh, where cows were allowed to free range into, uh, it wasn't like a farmer's field, but evidently it was, uh, it was, uh, used for free ranging because, uh, there, there was cow, uh, dung out there. Uh, but I didn't see any cows or anything. And so we followed the track line and, uh, I crossed over the barbed wire fence and lo and behold, there is a track right in a cow plat. And it's funny because the, the plat was pretty big and, uh, and he evidently stepped in it when it was fairly fresh. And, and, and his whole front of his, uh, the metatarsals, everything in the front of his foot, uh, hit the cow plat. Uh, and it was, it was enough into the cow plat to where there was a mid tarsal break formed out of, uh, out of cow manure, uh, a perfect mid tarsal break uh, made of dung. And then, uh, and then you could see the hill was into the grass, but you could still see exact, exactly where he stepped. And it was it was one of my uh, one of my landmark photographs uh, uh, that I have. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, the funny thing was, as he as he stepped, as his toes went through the cow dung, it kind of the cow dung kind of mushed back in upon itself. So it kind of looks like uh, he had there might be claw uh, claw tips or something. Now, you got to remember that the Bigfoot can they can have claws on their hands and their 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 toes not like a bear or anything but but uh you, you remember they don't have toenail clippers or anything so uh but uh but so of course i some people say oh that must be a bear because that looks like uh claws but uh trust me i i followed this creature and i saw his his tracks and all forms of substrate and it was no bear uh it it, it was a bigfoot and he was living in that nest and so uh the f now we left there that day. I immediately got home and I got busy. I contacted the DNR, uh, and and so I get this uh, this honcho in the DNR, and uh, <laughs> and I send him an email and I, with a picture of the nest, and uh, and I don't go into any details to him. I didn't tell him about the Bigfoot sighting. I didn't tell him about the tracks. Uh, I didn't tell him anything like that, and I just asked him. I said, "What do you think of this?" And he sent me back an email uh, that said, uh, and I quote, that is a pack rat nest. So I'm laughing to myself, musing to myself, and I sent him uh, a rebuttal. I said, uh, I said, you I said, now, sir, I didn't put anything in this picture for scale. I said, but do you realize uh, that this nest is five to six feet high at its opening? And he never did respond. He didn't, he didn't send me back an email. And I actually, actually even sent him another one. And I said, uh, I said, uh, Hey, this is, uh, this is, uh, Hal Lane again. I said, you never responded. I, I said, I wanted to tell you again that the opening to that picture, the nest opening in the picture I sent you was five, around five, six feet high. I said, uh, do you, are you still thinking pack rat? And he would not respond. So that, that, 
gives you an inkling as into the, his mindset. Now, um, I contacted the BFRO and they were extremely interested. They wanted to send Moneymaker and crew out. But being um, at that time, I wasn't physically able enough. Let me put it to you this way. I didn't have the oomph to go back. Uh, you know, when you like I was saying, when you when you cast footprints and track lines, you have bona fide evidence because you have the fingerprint ridges. Uh, the same thing is when you put your foot on a birth certificate as a, as a baby, that same print, that same exact bona fide certified evidence is left behind in every track. If you properly cast it, those same marks that are on your birth certificate come up in that cast, which makes it completely certifiably 100% truth that that creature walked in that spot at that given time and space. A lot of people don't understand this in, in the, in, in the uh, Elkins cast in Georgia, the first certified Bigfoot cast to come from East of the Mississippi. When the sheriff sent that cast off to Jeff Meldrum, Jeff Meldrum and Jimmy Chilcutt, one of the top fingerprint experts for, he's a Texas Ranger, I believe, but he testifies for the FBI in, in, um, in uh, death penalty cases and stuff. Uh, he, he looked at it. And of course, what everybody had been missing in, in these days was that the, all of the true cast from Bigfoot all had ridge lines in them. And Jimmy Chilcutt was able to look at that cast and certify that it was from a upright living being. Now, what differentiated it from a, a human or, or an ape was the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, human ridgelines run horizontal, apes run vertical, but this one, these Bigfoot tracks run diagonal. So once you do a casting of a track, you have bona fide, certified, provable indisputable evidence that it's a Bigfoot uh, because you can't fake that. These are a lot of them are not microscopic, but they're micro. In other words, you need a jeweler's glass to see them and to fake something like that would be just about impossible. Considering that Meldrum went through hundreds of casts sent to him from different decades and different states all across North America and Canada. And he was able to, certify that like out of say a hundred, 95 of them were, were real and that only like five were fakes because you can tell a fake instantly. There's no, there's no dynamics in the, in the tissue, the moving, the movement of the tissue. There's no uh, ridge lines. Uh, uh, all of the, uh, the, the things that present the morphology to, to, to the locomotion of the foot are not there. And a good, uh, a good, uh, as Jeff Meldrum is an anthropologist, he's also, a, he specializes in locomotion of primates. And so anybody like that can, can look at a cast and know if it's real or not. So at that time in California, uh, I would have casted that, those tracks of, of that particular Bigfoot in a heartbeat, but, uh, I couldn't, I was just, my health was wavering. Um, 
because of the accidents and and uh, things, I just could not get out like I was like I was used to doing. So I turned the BFRO down, and I didn't even let the guy come out and uh, and certify the sighting, the actual BFRO rep if for that particular part of California. Uh, you know, I had found and photograph what I, I knew was real. And I, I pretty much let it go with that. Uh, I just, I didn't have the personal uh, unction to, to push it any further. And, um, so sometime after that, uh, now I'm going to try to take you back to the East coast. Uh, I, I hated to leave California because of, you know, it, 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 it is a great place to squatch. The Sierra Mountains are just awesome. There's just so much Bigfoot screaming and uh, the Bigfoot's is big country. It's, uh, it's, but in one way it's, it's tough because you have to, you have to really cover some ground, uh, in, in, uh, in, unless you get lucky. And uh, it can be tough covering ground, especially in mountainous areas. And you have to kind of you have to kind of uh, go about the approach to looking for structures and different things in different ways. Now, remember that back then, uh, approaching the 90s, uh, still structures weren't um, they were not um, really known about. Uh, maybe they were in some circles, but you didn't see anything uh, pertaining to structures like you do now structures are the new thing because uh almost like like trackways or track lines as i prefer to call it uh structures are just really blowing up the the, the research in the field of hairy hominids now uh because certain things cannot be duplicated by humans in the middle of nowhere without machinery as these bigfoots are doing so uh that brings me back to the east coast now um I, I spend a lot of time in the woods deer hunting. And what I do is I combine every deer hunt I go on with Bigfooting. I, I, um, what I do is, is I, I, I go earlier than I should and I do tree knocks, uh, during the night or, um, I've never been big on the hollering. You, I, I have a big set of lungs, but some guys just really got a knack for that. And I just can't, produce that Ohio scream like some guys can. So I prefer to do uh, uh, obscure wood knocks and uh, and uh, uh, stuff like that. Uh, hoots. I'll do little, uh, little hoots and stuff like that, but I won't get into the big screen type stuff. So uh, I combine both deer hunting and bigfooting, and, uh, and usually I find that the, the best Bigfoot evidence I run into when I least expect it. Uh, I do now carry uh, Plaster Paris in a, it comes in half gallon containers, just like a half gallon of milk carton, carton of milk. And you can get it at Walmart for, uh, it's cheap. It's probably under seven bucks. I forget how much it is, but you keep it, keep it in your vehicle at all times. If you're Bigfooting, because like I said, if you run across a track line, you want to plaster uh uh, plaster of Paris, those tracks, you want to cast them uh, because there's your real bona fide proof that can keep people from scoffing and mocking you. Uh, if you if you have that cast, uh, let's just take the Elkins cast, for example. If anybody was to 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 scoff at that sheriff and say, uh, you know, you're just full of it. He just whips that cast out and say, here's the bona fide certified proof. 
that that animal was there. And so that's why I'm big on casting. And I, I, a lot of researchers, even in, in our own group and, and a lot of them I see, they're, they're, hint, they're, they're taking everything as photographs. But, you know, a photograph is one thing, but a cast is totally something different, totally. You, uh, it's, it's like, uh, it's like an eyewitness said, I, I believe I saw Sam Johnson run in that house uh, before that girl was, uh, robbed. Uh, but, uh, but if Sam Johnson's fingerprints are on the door knob and the police are able to pull them, it's certified, it's bona fide that he was there. So uh, hopefully I've explained <laughs> how I feel about the castings. So. That brings me to an, uh, an, I can't, you know, of course I can't go over everything that's happened to me in, in a half a century, but I, I'd like to bring, uh, bring to the audience's attention a couple of things that happened to me uh, that I find to be very profound. I, uh, I've been researching an area called, uh, I, I've self-named it Feldspar Swamp. It doesn't really have a name. It's a huge swamp uh, outside of uh, Monticello, Georgia. This associated with the Oconee National Forest, which is a 120,000 acre swath of land in mid Georgia. And it's kind of it's above the fall line. It's above the line where the ocean used to come up in Georgia. Uh, but it's uh, it, it, but it is very similar to fall line uh, fauna. Uh, and it's um, and this particular swamp is huge. Uh, you cannot enter it but one way. And it took me weeks to find out how to get back in there uh, by Google Earth because uh, this is what's called landlocked national forest land. It used to be mining companies, and there's a lot of old tailings ponds and stuff uh, and old hail cannons laying around. It's super old land. But what happens is as, uh, as mines run out or, or particular materials become less in demand, uh, mining companies will, will uh, turn their leases back over to federal government or federal federal government just comes in and buys the land from the mining companies or from the forestry companies. Uh, whoever's utilizing that particular uh, swath of land, uh, you know, it'll end up back in, in uh, federal hands. And so it becomes part of the Oconee National Forest. Well, it just so happens that this particular swath that I'm researching is um, landlocked. Uh, there's no roads leading into it. And so, uh, uh, you know, it's it, and it's, it's nearby impossible to get back to the particular area where I'm researching, which is a good thing. Uh, and Bigfoots know it. They know where the hunters are. Bigfoots know what guns are. They're not stupid. Uh, they uh, they they know what the I call it. I, 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 I say that Bigfoots call them thunder sticks. You know, I'm just I'm just musing. But, uh, you know, they know what a thunder stick is. And, uh, and they're, they're pretty much notorious for stealing deer hunters deer too. Once they're shot, uh, that's been pretty much proven. So this particular stretch of land, uh, it took me weeks to figure out how to get into it. And, uh, and when I did, uh, I'll never forget the first night I went in, uh, I had to park uh, a pretty good ways from the area that I had mapped out on. I have a GPS, um, uh, hiking program and I had uh, cached a couple of spots on the GPS that I wanted to check out because it, it was the, these areas were the farthest from civilization that you could get in that particular swath of land. And you're talking, we're talking about, uh, you know, maybe 10,000 acres down through there. And so uh, I worked my way back in there and, uh, and I had, uh, 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 my dog, uh, she, Sheba was a black mouth cur, uh, 
God rest her soul. And she was a hundred pound tenacious dog. And I had her with me. Now you got to envision this. The, 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 the only way in there's some old logging roads back in there that you can see on Google earth, but they're not, they're not, not visible by on any map or you can't find them any other, any way except to work your way down in there and then get on them. And, and they, and this particular road splits. And so it, it, it as it, as it V's out and goes down into the forest, uh, it, it, it spreads away from each other to approximately maybe there's probably maybe a quarter mile in between them. And so I go into the left side and I'm on foot and, uh, and, and I had pulled my truck down to the left fork, maybe, uh, 300 yards inside the left fork. And then I got out to walk from there because I didn't want to disturb, disturb the area. I wanted to ease back in there. And uh, it wasn't maybe a hundred yards that I saw off to my left. And I have this picture on the, on the Bigfoot crypto website. Um, it, it, it was the most amazing structure uh, that I've ever seen. I, I've seen few, but not nest actual nest i haven't seen a lot of and this was the most unbelievable one i've ever seen and it had a square opening and i was just floored when i saw it and about that time uh sheba took off running after something now what she was running after i have no idea but this dog had been my squatching companion and hunting companion for five solid years i never went anywhere without her not even to church I had that she would stay in an air conditioned truck and leave it running while I was in church. I mean, this dog was uh, my wife and I, this dog was with us. One of one of the other of us, uh, 24, 24, seven, 365. And so uh, when she took off, I was concerned because she never, ever runs off after deer or anything without immediately coming back as soon as she gets out of line of sight. Uh, uh, black mouth curs, or you see them in hog hunting uh, shows, uh, they'll always be the chase dog that catches the hog, grabs its ear, and the, then the pit bulls will come up and, and finish the job. And uh, because the curs are really fast, they're as fast as uh, just about as fast as greyhound, believe it or not. And so she took off, and so I didn't stay at the nest. I took a, a couple of pictures of it, and and I'm like, uh, and you couldn't see into it. It was it was like deep. Uh, uh, you know, this is broad daylight. And I couldn't see the back of the nest on the inside. And I'm standing like maybe 30 to 40 yards from it. So I go off down the dirt road, uh, not dirt road, but logging road and uh, fairly grown up too. And I'm going down the road chasing her, trying to get her back to see what she's after. And so I, I finally got her. And about that time, I heard uh, some strange screams of some kind and then they were followed by chest beating now at the time i didn't know it was chest beating it sounded like um like somebody had two uh pieces of bamboo and were hitting them uh, against a tree or something uh it was a very unique sound it was really really loud and i'm like oh my god what what is that so I, I'm listening to it and it, and it continues on. It, it's happening from, from maybe a hundred yards off to my side on one side. And I hear another one off the other way. 
and I'll be honest, uh, I don't spook easy. Uh, you know, I, I keep firepower on me. I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm scared every day, but I'm not afraid. And, and, but this actually kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies. I, I, I really didn't know what to think because I guess in my heart, I knew it was chest beating, but I wasn't sure until I got home and, uh, I Googled gorillas beating their chest in zoos. And I'm telling you folks, it was the exact same sound. Now I've been in around Bigfoot's, uh, you know, uh, uh, here and there, I've been messing with the, the phenomenon for over 50 years. I've never heard of any such thing. And, uh, Nancy Marietta who runs, uh, um, uh, Sasquatch, all, all theories, uh, welcome, uh, Sa Bigfoot Sasquatch, all theories, welcome. Uh, she's a, a writer and a, a good researcher and she's teamed up with Leo Frank. She was the only one to tell me she had heard of it. Other than that, nobody had. Now I, I interpreted it as an aggressive behavior. I really did. Uh, I got a feeling while I was standing there that, that something was really bad wrong. Uh, I can't really tell you why, but I took my dog and I leashed her and I got out of there just as, as fast as I could, uh, not running or anything, but I just made a hike straight back up. Uh, I think I went out the same way I came in, uh, Pretty sure I did. And uh, so I got home and I Googled the, the chest beating and I realized I was right. So, of course, at that time, I was uh, ready to take a, a, a trip back. So it took me approximately, uh, if my memory serves me, three to four weeks to get back. And uh, I did not take my dog this time because I, I did not want to endanger her uh, because by then I had figured out, yes, uh, that was probably a birthing nest. And yes, I had uh, I had made some hairy hominids mad. Uh, so I go back with heavier firepower than I went the first time. And I, I go again by myself against the advice of some of my other researcher friends, but I just can't sit around and wait on other people when I, when I want to go to the woods and look at something. And so, uh, I went back and let me tell you something, folks. Uh, first of all, I pull up to the head where the two roads split and not 50 yards down both roads. There are humongous trees laying in the logging roads. Now, of course, somebody would say, well, a storm must have come through and blew down them trees. Yeah. Well, that was the first thing that hit my mind. I got out and began to look at the possibility of moving them, you know, because uh, I didn't want to walk back down to where the nest was because it was, uh, you know, it was, I, 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 was, I would have had to hike an extra 300 yards to do that. And these trees were heavy. I mean, it had been tough to pull them out of the way with my truck even. I mean, these are big hardwoods. I don't know what kind of trees they were, probably uh, hickory or, or hemlocks. I don't know what they were. So anyway, um, the funny thing is there's no root ball on them, and there is no stump anywhere. Now, listen, I did a forensic video on this that I, I put out on uh, Bigfoot and All Things Crypto um, for a while. 
uh, you know, but once once a video's on there for a few months or something, it gets because we have so much stuff come on that on that Bigfoot group that it's washed way into the back somewhere. But I did a, a detailed forensic because this time I, I was going to uh, document everything I ran across. I did a detailed forensics on those trees. And I'm telling you, there wasn't a drag mark. If you drag a seven or 800 pound tree, you're going to leave a gouge in the ground. that's going to be there for weeks and weeks and weeks and probably four or five months, even through the rains and everything. I mean, knowing what I know about marking places in the in the forest and how things are affected. I'm telling you, if, if you drag a tree like that, you're going to leave it. There's no drag marks anywhere. No stumps anywhere. It was like it just materialized into the middle of the logging road to block me. Now I go to the other side and I think, well, you know, that's spooky because if, if you know, something can carry a tree like that. And so uh, I go over to the other side and the other trees exactly the same way. There's no stump. There's no tire tracks. I'm the only vehicle that's been down in there. There's no fresh tire tracks, nothing. And the second tree is the same exact way. No stump, no drag marks. The tree's just laying there blocking me. So I did the little forensic video on it, uh, on both of them. And then I I, I got my, my guns and I, I left my truck and I went down toward where the nest was, which now I'm having to hike about 500 yards in. I'm having to hike past where I drove in before at 300 yards and then down to where the nest was. So I get down there and I geocache that nest while I was in. Uh, that's where you can put a pin in a, in a, a GPS program for hiking and you can put a dime in the ground and geocache it. And this accurate. you could come back and find that dime. I mean, it, it, it pinpoints you to within just a few feet, like a, a, a four foot square. You can pinpoint it exactly. And so I came back uh, down to where the nest was no nest. So I'm confused because it was big. And I'm like, well, where's the nest? And I'm looking around and there's not even the sticks that made up the nest laying on the ground. Whoever had made the nest made it disappear. They took everything and and hauled it off somewhere. I mean, it was gone. I mean, there was no trace. And I so, of course, I'm thinking I geocached wrong. But here's the kicker. When I found the first nest. I also found laying in the road when my dog was with me, I found a piece of quartz that was shaped. I still have a picture of it. It's on the site. I have a piece of quartz that I found that looked just like an arrowhead almost. It was a big, sharp arrowhead looking piece of quartz, but it was not a point. It was not an Indian point. It was just a, a, a just some kind of an anomaly with a rock somehow. It just made this perfect spear point. And I'm thinking, yeah, I want this. So I put it at the base of a tree where there's like a little chipmunk hole going into the little uh, a base of a tree where sometimes it has a holler, hollow spot in it. And I put it right there in that little spot so I could find it when I left that day, but I forgot it. I look over there because uh, uh, I said, well, if I'm in the right spot, that rock will be there. And I look over there and there's that arrow point court sitting right there where I left it. I knew for a fact that the that the, the nest was gone. So also to right about even where the nest was that was now gone was another tree blocking the road. So I'm like, 
I did a forensic on it, and I did that video too. There was no stump, no drag marks. So at this time, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know what to think. I know they don't want me in there. So um, I'm thinking, uh, and later on, people said, well, maybe somebody brought those trees in with a helicopter. Well, you know, I'm just a peon, a, a podunk. Uh, uh, I, what what would somebody go to? Nobody's going to put that expense out. And, and number two, the canopy is about 125 feet in there. Uh, all these super old hardwoods. You couldn't get a helicopter close enough uh, to, to use a cable and drop these trees down. It would be, uh, it would be, you'd have to have like a 200 foot cable uh, with a helicopter flying up of, of 750 or 1,000 pound log. In there. And okay, but there is another uh, answer. Uh, maybe somebody, uh, people, maybe four or five or probably take maybe 10 men came in there to put those logs there. Well, number one, uh, they don't even know I'm there. Why would they try to block me out? And the only way that they could have gotten there would have been to bring canoes across the swamp uh, because the only other way in, you have to go through an open water swamp uh, that more or less forms like a, a, a almost like a lake. And you would have had to come through, uh, through four or 500 yards of water and how are you going to get the tree across there? And and the last thing was is if they did that, where are the drag marks? And 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 the motive? There's no motive. Why would you want to keep Hal out of these woods? So you know, I'm thinking back that it was a birthing area. They had babies back in there, and they don't want to be disturbed. So they blocked the road, knowing it would block the trucks, and they beat their chest to scare me out. And, and, uh, you know, I just won't be scared out, but at the same time, uh, you know, I, whoever carried those trees, I'm hoping it was two Bigfoot carried each one of them, because if it was one Bigfoot carried those trees, then I don't think I have enough firepower to protect myself should one of them decide, uh, to do me harm. And so that was the, uh, Feldspark swamp encounter for me. Now I did also hear, uh, other sounds while I was down there. I had some other things happen that weren't, weren't as profound. So I'm not going to go into them now. Uh, what I want to do is, uh, go into a, a different encounter I had not that far from there. Uh, that was eerily similar, similar. Uh, I took a friend of mine, uh, hunting and we were in a, a preserve, uh, that's known as Cedar Creek. And there has been a, 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 a lion uh, trap there. Uh, I knew some some top-ranking DNR officials that uh, I, I got this story from. They didn't let it out because they didn't want uh, uh, people in the area knowing about it. But panthers and, and mountain lions and uh, our, our cougars are fairly common in Georgia. People don't realize this, but they come down from the mountains. They follow river chains down, and panthers come up from Florida and the Okefenokee and they follow the river chains up. Black bears do too. And so um, Cedar Creek is, is just, it's been part of the national forest and it's been a wildlife management area for a long time. And there's a particular area that I found that's kind of uh, like Feldspar Swamp. It's very secluded. Nobody hardly knows how to get back in there. There's no hunter's trash, no cigarette butts, no beer cans, nothing, just like Feldspar. It's just nobody knows uh, how to get in there because it's it's 
it's just the way that the land lies. You have to use topographical maps and, uh, and national forest maps and WA maps, and you have to study them to find out where certain areas are that you can access. But most people are not going to take the time to do that. Uh, you know, they go in and they get one of these little cheap border maps from the uh, uh, wildlife station, and uh, they're very, uh, they're just tacky little maps that have, uh, you know, the, the, they show the borders is all they really show. They don't show anything, anything detailed. So I found this area uh, and uh, I took my friend to it. We got down in there and the first thing we noticed is there weren't any squirrels. There weren't any rabbits. I mean, there was nothing. This this area was so dead. And I'm like, what's going on? Because the deer in that area are 40 per square mile. There's more deer than people per square mile in that particular area. And it just seemed just extremely dead to me. And sure enough, he and I are scouting this dirt road, not dirt road, again, logging road. I keep referring to them as dirt, but logging roads. Uh, for those of you not familiar, it's just an old road that was used for loggers to access an area and then it's abandoned and it has little pine trees growing in it and it's covered with leaves, but you can see where it runs down through an area and it's a good way to access an area quietly. Well, we're look going down it and I've got big Bigfoot on my mind and I think my buddy does too because he had mentioned something, asked me if it was Bigfoot structure sign and I said no. And, and we're looking, and sure enough, we find tracks where Bigfoot had crossed the road in, in several places, too. And so then I knew that there was really something going on. So we are back, at, and this road has a head that splits, too. And, uh, and so uh, as the roads travel down, they only separate themselves by uh, maybe 500 yards, not as much as the, as the split roads at Feldspar do. And now you got to remember, we both had rifles and I sent him down that road and I went down the one where we found the tracks and I told him to move very slowly like molasses on a cold day and go all the way down to the end of that road, which is probably a quarter of a mile. And I was going to do the same thing on the other road. Now, the only thing I can think of is that we uh, evidently this family of, of Bigfoots, uh, however many there were, were uh, avoiding us by staying at the at the centermost point of uh, from as you travel back from the apex of those two roads as they spread out. They were evidently in the very middle at the farthest point from from the roads on both sides of them. And uh, and, and looking back on the topography of the area, I can kind of see why. But as we got further down that road, we begin to hear, I guess it was warning signals from them. These strange sounds. Uh, now, my this friend of mine is is just very new to the uh, to the woods and to Sasquatching. He's a great gunman but he is not a woodsman and I'm teaching him and, uh, and he didn't know what to think actually. Uh, but he had seen the tracks and he, he put two and two together that it must be Bigfoot's making the noise. You know, when you've been in the woods for a long time, uh, uh, you instantly, uh, a lot of times, you know what a sound is, but, uh, even, even him with his, uh, being a novice, he knew that it was, it was something weird going on. And I knew it was Bigfoot and I, I, as I got down there, I, uh, 
I made a few sounds. I think I did a tree knock and something else. And, uh, and, uh, and then I heard them, I heard them scooting around and scuffling around. I heard them moving. And, uh, and so, uh, about that time he called me and we decided to get out of there. He was pretty spooked by that time. And, uh, and, uh, and so, uh, we left the area and, uh, but, but the lesson learned really is that, um, Bigfoots are, are uh, the population's exploding in Georgia now. Uh, it pretty much, uh, from what I'm hearing from people across the United States, and uh, I don't know about Canada, uh, but uh, as far as Florida and the South and Pennsylvania, where uh, Cryptovania is, and in uh, California, all my folks out there in Utah and Fort uh, Hood and different places, um, what is it? Um, they're just, uh, everybody's noticing for some reason. That, uh, that the structures are showing up uh, in places uh, a lot more than they used to. Uh, you're finding tracks in areas you wouldn't necessarily uh, find them. Uh, they're encroaching on urban areas even, uh, following green belts in and being, and their sign is being found in, in uh, uh, city parks and in, in, in more rural towns like Savannah, Georgia and stuff. Uh, there's just been a, uh, some remarkable stuff going on in, in the Bigfooting world lately. Uh, and we don't know, like I say, we don't, we don't know why there would be such a population increase uh, or if it's that there's more communication now because of social media and, and, and the times uh, being what they are, that people are, are finding more evidence, reporting more evidence and, and we're able to put these things together. But, uh, I, I personally think that, that everybody's right, that there is a population uh, increase. Uh, Bigfoot and all things crypto is about to put out their own, our own population estimate. And it's going to be kind of shocking because it's going to be a lot, uh, a lot higher number than, than uh, the, the mainstream school of thought goes. Uh, the old school guys and, and the think tanks uh, that have come up with estimates before, uh, we're not buying it. We're not buying it at all because uh, just you can go uh, up into North Georgia uh, and go in the woods and, and within 30 minutes you can find sign of Bigfoot, definite sign that we know now are them different things like glyphs made on the ground out of sticks and in uh, geometric formations like squares. And they're, they're doing uh, what we call wedding arches where they bend trees over, loop them around a tree laying on the ground that runs parallel to the direction of the bent over tree. And then, uh, and the, and you know, it's a hominid because you have to have thumbs. You have to have opposing thumbs to tie the ends of the tree, uh, to another tree. And we're finding these in areas where there's no human footprints. People hadn't been back in these areas. We, we, you know, there are hoaxes that go on, but they're far and few between. You may be surprised. People, specific Bigfoot structures, people don't just go way out in the woods and say, Hey, what are you going to do today? Well, I'm going to build me a, a fake Bigfoot structure. So some guy uh, researching Bigfoot will come back in here a year from now. And he'll see this and he'll think that's a Bigfoot. I'm sorry. I don't buy into any of that. Some people think a lot of that's going on. And uh, but once you get good at finding their structures, once you've seen enough of them, you're uh, you're pretty well. You know what you're seeing. You know what you're looking for. And uh, it, it's just amazing. Uh, they also do uh, these giant X's. They will literally hang uh, uh, telephone pole sized trees up in the trees somehow. 
and and make giant X's, which we believe means stay out, but we don't know for sure, of course. Uh, uh, back to the um, and they'll make small X's on the ground. Uh, you you you'll get into an area where they've taken all the trees and they've made a ton of tic tac toe symbols, like uh like um pound symbols all through the trees. I've got a photograph from one of my areas where they where they've done that, where I got screamed at, and uh and uh they uh they uh, they do these wedding arches. We, we're thinking now that the wedding arches are, you know, there's a lot of theory here, but we're thinking it's just directional that they use them so they can mark a path because every deer hunter is broken off a sapling in their deer hunting career at some point to mark a trail. You, you go you go off a logging road to where you're going to do your deer stand 50 yards in, you start breaking saplings all the way. So you come back at night and you can follow your way in. Well, Bigfoots are just breaking bigger trees. They're breaking trees with three and four inch diameters at, uh, at about even with our chin, because that's where they're, uh, uh, range of motion is for the most strength in their upper body and they're breaking those and and uh we're pretty sure they point to the area they're heading to and all it is is if they're traveling through the woods at night and they have cat vision they they can see those breaks and they'll follow them to a water source let's say now they also do the uh the bent over trees uh, uh ginger uh, lockwood has found some that have an apex 15 feet high now, uh, how do you get up into a tree 15 uh, to get that high to bend over a tree and then you tie the end of it to another tree on the ground to keep it bent over? These are hairy hominids doing this. And uh, and we think there, uh, you know, some people think there's a more uh, nefarious or clandestine type uh, uh, motive behind them. Personally, I, I like to start at the ground and work my way up. If something's above my pay grade, I try not to go there. But I think they're just directional. I really do. And uh, and uh, just like anybody else, because uh, you, you're having to navigate through the woods all the time, you've got to mark your path. You've got to have a way of finding your areas in the dark and in the daylight. Uh, and keep in mind that Bigfoots move through the woods following food sources like ripening berry crops or Farmer John's uh, corn crop is, is ready to eat or uh, uh, Aunt Granny's garden is coming in or the cranberry, I mean, the uh, the um, the um, crab apples are dropping in a certain area and they'll follow these ripening patterns uh, to, to get these different foods and they need direction. They may only pass this way twice a year. And so they need to, to be able to mark their path to come back. And also, too, we're finding a lot of uh, these. Uh, I told you these glyphs and these geometric forms on the ground. Uh, I personally think it's uh, Bigfoot's way of doodling. There's got to be a lot of downtime and, and boredom and they're in the trees. And, and so they take these sticks and they'll make a little triangle on the ground. Well, no, a squirrel doesn't know, make triangles. It takes opposing thumbs. When you find a triangle and a rectangle and a square, and uh, uh, you may not find any obtuse rectangle, but anyway, you, you, you find these different designs, simple designs, and they're just they're just killing time or maybe it has a, 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 a deeper meaning. I, I don't know. Uh, but I can tell you this as I, as I, uh, as I finish this up is uh, this much. I do know. I know that they're, they're there. I'm not exactly sure where they come from or how they got there. I would be a fool if I told you I did. Uh, I, I, I don't try to reach for the greatest denominator in something. I like to I like to think of everything I can on simple terms and, and go from there. And I, I so I don't know where they come from, but I do know they're there. 
And I do know there's a lot of them. And uh, and for the most part, I don't think they mean us harm. Uh, but, you know, uh, you could have Bigfoots that are sick with rabies or or uh, distemper or something or got into somebody's uh chemicals uh or somehow or you can have a lot of things that could alter the mindset of a of, of a of a creature like that and make him dangerous uh yeah, some people say that they're part human well uh, so the, they can't be dangerous they're part human well evidently that person has never watched the news and so uh if if uh, that's what really scares me if they really are part human then i really am scared uh and some people think they come from gigantopithecus they think that 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 a known ape like that crossed the Russian land, land bridge, came to this continent, and 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 then they spread out, and that that uh, Bigfoot is the distant relative of Gigantopithecus, and and of course, Bigfoot exists in China. Uh, there's a lot of them, so that theory uh, has a lot of weight in it, and we don't know uh, how Gigantopithecus maybe morphed into a more a little bit more humanoid. Uh, so so basically, the theory now is they're a humanoid hominoid. And so, uh, uh, you know, who knows exactly? Like I said, the more you learn, the less you know. And pretty much I'm going to wrap it up that I'd like to thank Vic for having me on tonight. I hope I wasn't boring or long winded. And uh, until I see you again, uh, keep seeking the unseen. But just remember, don't be afraid of what is seen. Be afraid of the unseen. This is how with Bigfoot and all things crypto. That's it for another episode of Bigfoot Eyewitness Radio with Vic Cundiff. If you've had a Sasquatch encounter and would like to be a guest on the show, please go to BigfootEyewitness.com and submit a report. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Have a great night. <laughs>